So welcome to the show. We're gonna we're gonna start this again. Yeah, clap. Uh, so Randy and I were talking for about five minutes. We're having some technical difficulties. It's just one of the the the, the problems from social distancing, quarantining, whatever that might be. So I'm in Salt Lake. Where are you at? Uh, I'm in uh, Marin County, California. Oh yeah, yeah. And so we. The thing that I'd asked you first of all, and I kind of started with more of a statement, which is we we've been trying to catch each other. I've been trying to catch you for I don't know at least a couple of years. Once I figured out that Tom had a direct connection to you, and uh, and I was talking to Tom about something, I, was, I, I think I was traveling with the TRX strap, and that provoked a conversation, and. I was talking to him about, yeah, I was, I was an early adopter to it. And, you know, I, I was, we were, we were making these jokes about, I'm like the perfect lifetime value customer because I've bought six different versions, probably at least over the last 10 years, I've given away or, or forgotten TRX straps in quite a few different places, literally around the world. I think it'd be hard to even put a pin in a lot of these places. <laughs> I'm just a fan of the device and so to get to talk to the guy that invented it, super cool. Uh, so tell us the, the genesis story of where were you because you were in the Navy at the time, and, and how did this whole thing come to be? All right, so we'll take two on this yeah. one. We, uh, <laughs> although we missed a lot of great stuff of you and me taking the piss out of Davin, <laughs> yeah. which, which we got to somehow get into this yeah. podcast. We will. Um, well, uh, so so the the quick version, you know, I was a SEAL uh, for a long time, spent a bunch of time at the Special Missions Unit, and we were deploying throughout the 90s. We were deploying a lot into places where, you know, it was kind of de- deterrence through deployment, and we'd end up in a place, and then maybe the op would, would go, you know, frankly, more often than not, it didn't. Um, but you never knew. And the one consistent theme was you'd blow out in a few hours to a place or even move forward to do a workup for something and you wouldn't have gear to train with. And back, you know, back to command, we had pretty world-class training facilities. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, somewhere around the world with, with no gear other than operating gear. Right. And, and I was on one of those, we were doing a workup for a, for a potential counter piracy operation over in Southeast Asia. And I was sitting in a warehouse had accidentally deployed, you know, with my, as I was throwing my bag together back in my cage, I'd scooped up my flight suit and underneath it, I had my jujitsu belt, uh, and I didn't realize it. And so I, there I end up sitting on a cot staring at, you know, this jujitsu belt at my feet and just had this spark of inspiration. I was trying to figure out how to, cl- how to train the climbing muscles to get up a caving ladder on the side of a ship with a bunch of gear on my back. And, you know, I went over and tied a knot in the end of the, of the belt and threw it over the top of, of what was literally a shitter door, uh, the bathroom door, closed it, leaned back against gravity, and then tried to do this movement of climbing a ladder. Today, we call that movement in, in TRX the power pole. And it was just, it was literally just the perfect way to load this movement 
and use gravity in this stupid, you know, simple strap right. to to train it. And then then I went over and rummaged around in the in the spare gearbox and got another six feet of nylon webbing out of there, tied a knot in the middle of the belt, right where where now I could get some standoff from the door to right. get to get room for my wingspan to start to do things like flies and presses and you know not only row type stuff but turn around and get between me and the end of the straps and be able to do presses and you know chest flies and then it just literally blossomed from there and dudes you know came over and did what they do in a in a in a combat unit first thing they do is come up and mock the shit out of you right right, for whatever it is you're doing and then very quickly thereafter they're pushing you out of the way and saying all right wait, wait, wait a minute let me get my hands on this thing and it just uh, kind of started opening up like a flower, uh, and each guy that you know got one made by by another buddy who was out in the rigger loft and liked to drink beer. Everybody'd go out and you know give him a case of beer, and he'd make a set of straps for him. And it just kind of slowly but surely, very organically, started to grow. And I thought that was clever and fun, but I never viewed it as a business. But, Fill the need. And when you're working your way through that, and that was what '98? Is that what you you were telling me earlier? Is like it was like '90, yeah, '97, '98 time frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, how much longer were you in the Navy at that point? From '98 on, before you 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 got out? Do they call it ETS in the Navy? I'm not exactly sure. What, like your break in service? How much longer were you in the Navy? Well, so I went, I, I joined up in 87, mm-hmm. ended up having my squadron command, uh, a turnover of, of command in uh, July of 2001, which was a, you know, dubious, like, bit of timing there. Right. And I I had decided at that point, you know, all the stuff over in Bosnia was winding down. And basically, it was kind of one of those, well, if I'm ever going to, if I'm ever going to make, oh, and, and there's one, one not insignificant factor there. Uh, my my wife was pregnant with uh, with my first son, and you know was completely done with the superhero deployed nine months a year right. lifestyle. Uh, and so it seemed to me at the time, it's kind of ironic in retrospect, the world was a pretty damn peaceful place. Right. Um, and and you know as as a guy who was promoting out of the field, it just seemed to me to be a time that you know what let me let me see if I can she sort of announced that she was moving to the West coast to take a promotion and I was welcome to come. (laughs) And and so I did what any, you know, resourceful spec ops guy will do. I tried to cut a deal and, and basically said, look, let me apply to one school, right? To to one school will make sense, which was Stanford business school. And if I get in then I was at 14, almost 15 years at that point. Right. So, so if I get in, you know, then I'll resign my commission and, and we'll move and I'll be the first one of my friends to actually know my little boy. Right. Right. And then, and then if I don't get in, you suck it up. Right. And, and let me finish out 20 or 25. And, 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 and so to my astonishment, she said, okay, deal. Well, I thought that was the safest damn deal in the history of all deals because there was zero chance that I was going to get into Stanford business school. Right. right. Zero. I love the bark in the background there. Yeah, I mean, it's, my it's, uh, it's my daughter's. Hey, dog, this is actually. all, this is all like shelter in place, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's, yeah. We're, we're going to get to see my kid before this podcast <laughs> is over. I'm quite sure he's, he, he will not be able to contain himself um, coming into the kitchen. 
But uh, anyway, so that was it. And I, I applied and I expected 100% to get turned down. I hadn't had math in 25 years. You know, my GMAT scores were sort of reflected that. And, uh, and to my everlasting astonishment, you know, the letter came and it was fat instead of thin. Right. And right off the bat, you know, she, she, she her heart swelled and my heart shrank. And, uh, and, and, and lo and behold, they decided that that was the year that they wanted a, a special ops guy and in, in the recruiting poster. And, uh, so even though this guy was a mathematical moron, they decided to let me in. <laughs> That's great. I, I mean, I can empathize with that. I was, I was in, in 95, there wasn't really going, there wasn't anything going on. I was in college and, you know, the world seemed like a fairly safe place 2000, give or take. And that's when I decided I was going to go try to become a, a green beret. So I had good timing on the, on that end where I was like just starting my career at that point. And, but the late nineties, man, the, the, the guys that kind of joined before me in the eighties and nineties, there were a bunch of guys that had you know, jumped into Panama and they'd done some Haiti stuff. And so they, that was the combat experience that guys had seen, you know, Bosnia and, and a lot yeah. of those rotations. And it wasn't until later, uh, I, I started working with more seals and probably a lot of guys that, you know, uh, because they went from your office over there to that, the agency. So you, you probably know a ton of guys over there that I know at the same time, because I was like the, the token green beret over there amongst a bunch of seals. But the, the interesting thing is you get out and you go to Stanford and the wars kick off, I would imagine. Right. So psychologically that had to weigh like a heavy toll on, on a guy like you that spent, that much time in the Navy, oh, like, what, were, what were you wrestling with? Well, everything, yeah. right? I mean, it's funny. I, I do a lot of work now helping guys transition, yeah. right? And and one of the reasons that I'm a question because I had, I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to, to, to tell you the answer to your question, right? Because it, it I had such a privileged transition, but that didn't matter. It didn't matter that I was that I was going to Stanford Business School, right? In fact, it, it kind of made it worse because number one, I mean, I was at the bottom of of, of the first twenty curves, right? right that of, of the of the exams that I took because I'm surrounded by all these whiz bang kids, right? At least ten years my junior, right? Right, and 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 so I was struggling, which didn't comport to the way I viewed myself as a recently. Yeah, recent squadron commander at, at the special missions unit. Right. And now all of a sudden I'm at the bottom of these, you know, these, these tests, uh, cause I just don't have the skills, frankly, right. you know, and, and then on top of that, all my guys are blowing out. I mean, you know, blue squadron were the first guys, you know, to, to, to insert into the AO and they're all my guys. It was brutal, man. It was one of the hardest experiences of my life, which sounds ridiculous. Um, but it's true. You know, I, I just kind of went into psychic free fall. Right. Um, uh, and, and I, I came inches from, you know, getting back in, but there were a couple of things that, that, you know, just, I had this, I had a newborn, you know, I just taken on and I'm kind of one of those cats that, you know, I, I don't, 
I don't take on that many things because I'm obsessive about them when I do. Right. And, and so, you know, I had committed to this, I I'd moved, you know, my ass across country. I was, had a, had a few month old, my, my first son was born in, you know, uh, June 20, June 30th, 2001. Right. So, so he was a couple months old when, uh, you know, when nine 11 hit and, and I was neck deep at Stanford and, you know, committed to that. And so I, I barely hung in there, not just chucking it all and jumping back in and deploying overseas. And, um, but you know, I struggled through it for the first year. It was tough. And then guys started getting killed in action, right. You get all this, this guilt about, you know, maybe that wouldn't have happened if I would have been there, which is totally irrational, but but real. Right. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, that was a hard, that was a hard time for me, which kind of sounds silly, frankly, uh, in retrospect, but it was. No, I think, I think a lot of guys deal with that, you know, even when you're home and the rest of your unit might be forward deployed and you don't have a decision necessarily, even on the rotation that you're pulling, you know, you, you feel like you should be there. I think that was one of the hardest things, for me later in life is I moved over into a training cell. And so I wasn't really deploying the last year and a half that I was working at the office. And it was really difficult psychologically because guys were getting ready, you know, they're spinning up to go out one, they were going to fucking really cool places and you knew exactly what they were going to be doing. So, but your job is to put your ass in that chair and teach the, the the next generation of guys coming through, but you had to constantly frame your focus, right? It was just like your azimuth check was almost daily, if not multiple times a day where you're fighting those feelings of wanting to go out, but you know what's right for yourself and your family. And it's being drawn and quartered to a certain degree psychologically at times, because you're just being pulled apart at the seams. And now when you were in Stanford, were you also working to, to develop your business model and kind of working through TRX at that time? Or did you even, were you even thinking that way? Not, not really. I mean, I, I was, uh, you know, I was first, I was just trying to deal with all the stuff you just described, right? right? It was, it was, it was pretty. And frankly, I think really the one thing beside my kid that, that kept me front sight focused on what I was you know, committed to do was the reality that if I went back, right, I already promoted through squadron command. So I was going to go over, you know, I would have been an LNO or I would have been a, you know, a staff guy supporting the shooters. Right. And while that's, well, that's, you know, needs to be done. I really, I really had been almost my entire career been leading operational units in the field. And that's what turned me on. Right. So the reality that that was probably behind me kind of helped helped keep me focused on what I was trying to do. And, and, uh, cause if they would have let me back in the squadron, I would have been gone, right. you know? Um, but it's kind of one of those things. Once your time is done, right. This guy's queued up behind you and, and uh, ready to go. So, so when I got to Stanford, I was thinking about, you know, taking what I knew and I'd learned as a military officer about leadership and I was going to go try to apply it, you know, learn a new vocabulary, because I think that's a challenge that, right. that all of us face when we, the military has had. We know so much shit that 
that people need yeah. and, and, and civilian ventures need, but translating that, right, and, and learning a new vocabulary can be challenging. So I, I had the privilege, right, of going to one of the best business schools in the world. So that was why I was going to use that, uh, that tool. And I never thought about when I went in there really doing a startup, I yeah. thought I was going to go to one of these big tech companies. You know, I was 36 at that point, dude. Right. So, you know, 36 with a newborn baby and, you know, for, for almost 15 years of military service. I, I thought, all right, well, I'll go to a big company and, you know, use my, use my skills that I have and, and help them. But when I was there, it was funny because another buddy of mine and I used to, used to go out and train in the athlete training center. He'd been a football player there, and, and I was this old commando, so they let us go out into the athlete training center, not the campus gym. Right. And we'd go out and hook up my straps and just crush it, right? And over the course of like six months, every single one of the coaches that would be in there with their teams – would be like, what in the hell are these dudes, these old dudes doing over there, right? And they'd come over and they'd ask. And 10 minutes later, they'd be asking me, hey, could you make me a set of these for my, for my crew, right? Well, and, and those, every one of those coaches had a different kind of team, male, female, big, right. small, you know. And, and, you know, you're at business school thinking about business. And so I'm like, God damn, I wonder. And so I took that summer between my first and second year and said, instead of going to McKinsey or Bain or yeah. one of those and, you know, making a decent internship living, I'm going to go. Actually, it's pretty funny. Ironically, I've got this other this, this initiative that I'm going to teach my son, my little boy, you know, ways to contribute. And we're going to we're going to make some masks right for the right. medical community here. Yeah. So ironically, if I can shift you for yeah. a minute, I went and bought this thing. Can you see what that is? It looks it's, like a sewing machine. It's about a 50-year-old uh, sewing machine <laughs> that, that, I, that I went and I bought down on Geary Avenue from this old sewing, uh, this old dude, Mr. B, at this, I'll never forget that guy. It was like 50 bucks, 50-year-old machine. And I sat down and I started prototyping to take it from this sort of Cro-Magnon, you know, upside down Y with some loops in the end. Right. Maybe develop that into something that somebody would buy, right? We'd yeah. be willing to pay money for it. And then I also spent a bunch of time that summer just working through, you know, modeling, trying to find, figure out how I would do a supply chain. If, if this crazy idea ended up having legs, you know, where, how would I, how would I get these made in scale? And I, and started talking to prospective investors, right? right. Just angels. Yep. Like, and, and, and so by the end of that summer, I had kind of convinced myself that, all right, this is, this is at least not such a dumb idea that it's not worth me taking, you know, some of the classes in my second year and kind of focusing them on this business. So my second year became this incubator, right? Where it was the no go, it was the go, no go moment. Right. When, by the time I graduated, I was going to have the answer. Either I'm going to do this thing or I'm going to go get a real job. Right. right? And, and by the end of it, I had enough positive feedback from enough smart people who said, you know what, this could really actually be something. And uh, so that was it. Man, I, I, uh, I launched sort of within, took me about a year after graduation, honestly. I mean, you can certainly appreciate how long it takes, right, right from idea until you have more or less some kind of an embryonic business. And, and so it took me about a year to kind of get to the point where I was ready to hire somebody and, you know, start, start going after it. And I just never looked back. 
How, how did that, how did that roll out though? That year. So you graduate now you've, you've, you've done and you've got what kind of gone through, I would imagine your prototyping, you have a product, you just got out of business school. So obviously you'd probably built out your models. You had your pitch deck, I would imagine, because you're trying to go out and, and maybe seek some funding. Were, were you carrying this thing around and, and doing, you know, multiple meetings and trying to pitch people on the idea? Is that what was happening or what was happening? Hey man, were you roasting your own coffee? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's, and I, I've always been like pretty self-reliant. I think that's probably a characteristic that runs through, you know, our kind of tribe. And so what I was, what I was doing was I was saying, all right, I can bear the risk here. Right. Fortunately at the time, you know, I had, I had a, a spouse that was able to, to kind of keep the bare minimum afloat. Right. Right. No, no more, but keep the minimum afloat. And then I, had uh, levered the hell out of my student loans so that I would have some seed capital, yes. right? That levered them up and I didn't spend it. And then also had, you know, maybe I had 50 grand in, in my, you know, savings account from my career in the, in the teens. So I put all that together and, and just, uh, you know, started, started doing the things I needed to do. Got insurance, got a tiny little armpit, you know, office warehouse, it was like a thousand square feet, you know, out in the middle of the no one wants to rent zone of, right. of uh, South San Francisco. And then uh, and just started started literally going gym to gym with a backpack full of straps and my story. Right. And I would get a fitness manager. I probably did. Honestly, Evan, I probably did 500 <laughs> gym visits during the first three, four years. And it was me with a backpack full of straps, right? I worked out like a beast. So I was like, you know, chiseled as shit. And I'd walk in and just be like, okay. And I'd tell my story, right, about how I created this thing. And I'd get a fitness manager to give me a half hour of their of their once a month sort of staff training, you know, period where right. they bring in like 30, 30 of their trainers. And they'd give me a half hour to dig, sing for my supper. And then, you know, you'd get a bunch of stink eyes and guys be like, yeah, you see me, I lift a little bit of weight here, you know, and, and uh, then you'd always peel off two or three of them, two or three of them would come up afterward and be like, Hey, I think this thing's like special. You know, how do I get involved? And that was interesting because it really helped me inform where I was going to and who my partners, if you will, in the form of customers, are going to be to get this off the ground and help me discover where there was this need. Trainers need cool new tools to problem. And there was this one. Like a lot of these folks would train people in their homes. Right. There were there were a lot of there was still a lot of machine training where people go sit down at a selectorized plate machine. You know, this was kind of right in the infancy of CrossFit. So CrossFit hadn't made its mark yet either. Right. Um, and, and, and there were, there were a lot of things that this crazy simple strap did physiologically. Right. And then there were a lot of things that it did in terms of convenience and access right. and customizability that just didn't exist. And so trainers kind of snapped it up. And that was when, when I knew like, okay, at least I have one segment, right. That thinks this is, this is valuable. Yeah, because when I first saw it, I was having a, I was having this tendonitis issue in my elbow, so I was making full weight pull ups 
almost an impossibility, right? It was, so you'd have to, you know, stack boxes and I'd have to, you know, put myself at a different angle to try to do. Yeah. 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 And that was before rubber bands were a big thing too, before you could see those in the gym. So when I saw it, I was like, Oh, this is perfect. I, I, I can displace my weight a little bit. So I'm not doing a full, full pull up. I didn't think of it as anything else other than this will give me the opportunity to do exactly what I need to do to kind of rebuild my strength or maintain strength while my elbow heals essentially. So I'm not loading it up with a bunch of weight. And then when I kind of unpacked it a little bit, it it became one of those things where every deployment I went on, it was in my bag, you know, and then you'd see other guys too. They'd have them as well before because early on in the wars, it was there. There wasn't any gym, any gym equipment. You're living out in, you know, some shithole somewhere, and you're just you're grabbing ammo cans and water cans and every Flintstone gym item yeah. you can think yeah. of. And it was the one thing I was like, "This is light. It's great. It works." And so I. I kind of just adapted it into my life at that point. And one of the things I really liked about it was exactly that. I still use it to this day because I'll go through different bouts of tendonitis all the time. So I'm kind of using it as a way to kind of work around, but then it incorporated in to my workouts to the point where, you know, I use it still to this day, three, four days a week. And that's way more than my bumper plates or anything else that I'm using at this point. So it, when you're at your home gym now, are you still using the TRX almost every day? Are you, are you rotating in and out of other stuff? Well, I've always, um, I mean, look, I came from a big sort of, you know, first I came from a, from a body weight tradition cause I was a wrestler. Okay. But then, but then, you know, at the time when I, when I joined the teams, there was still a lot of the bodybuilding culture that was, you know, from the eighties, I yeah. think that was still part of what guys routines were throwing around a lot of iron, right. not doing a lot of core training, right. Just doing a lot of big muscle prime mover lifting yeah. and not a lot of the things that it turns out the suspension trainer does, which is shore up a lot of those connection points, right. right. Between the, between the prime movers and especially around uh, core training and low back yeah. because, you know, you're walking around in armor all the time, man, yeah. and, and you, you're, you're bulking up all your upper body and you end up with, you know, that weird combination of getaway sticks, yeah. right, little skinny legs and, and then low back issues and, yeah. and guys, including me, had a lot of low back issues. Um, and so, I started using the suspension trainer and a lot of that stuff just went away. It was really bizarre. It it just went away over time. And so I've always kept it as a, you know, I was a rower in college as well. And so I, you know, I've always had a concept too. Right. Like I live on my concept too. Um, and I've been a runner. And so I kind of, for a long time, I mean, I, I've li- you know, I've kept lifting a little bit. There's yeah. a few things that I like to do. I have, I got a, you know, an Olympic bar and I with bumper plates and I, you know, I love my cleans. Right. So, right. so, so, but, but I, I also kind of have, have watched a lot of the cool stuff coming out of CrossFit. So I became a kettlebell fan. Right. Right. And, and so I kind of bounce between, you know, running, but I don't at, at my tender age, right. That's the other thing is that those miles add up man. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I don't know exactly, you know, I turned 55 this year. So, 
that stuff starts to, you have to train smarter yeah. as the years go by, not just harder or, or the machine literally comes apart. Right. And, um, and so I do, I'd say, uh, on an average week, I'll get two, three workouts on my straps mixed in with, you know, a day or two of yoga, a day or two of concept two, you know, I get on there and rip all kinds of different pieces. Um, and then I do some, you know, that lift and, and, but I, I'm, I've become more like a monkey now. Okay. I, I sort of cycle between a whole bunch of different stuff, um, over the course of the week. And I, I, it seems to be working for me. Yeah. That's interesting because I've done that too, because like I've had so many, I've had back issues. I, I broke my sacrum a few years ago. Like I shattered my sacrum, which was, it was a horrible injury to try to recover from. It, been brutal. it was horrible. And since then, like I've never, my back has never been right. Right. It just feels like it's always in knots. But I'm the same way. I've got a gym here at the office, and it's built out relatively well. But I kind of just – I try – what I try to do now is just like hit times, right? So if I'm going to do 60 minutes, I'm going to keep my heart rate at X. I'm going to do yeah. as many you know, ground-to-top exercises I can do you know, with weight and with body weight and things like that where my biggest thing is just making sure that I'm not – getting into tendonitis realm because for whatever reason, I think a lot of us are so prone to tendonitis. I'm just trying to steer clear of tendonitis and keep my, my heart rate, you know, 140 ish the entire duration, because I've also noticed that that'll maintain strength and I can get out and do the things that I really like to do. I can maintain energy, but a lot of those things are super difficult, obviously, as you know, because when you're running a company and you're raising kids and running a company, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in, in like, as we kind of shift our focus in the conversation to your years of this startup and kind of working through your startup mode, when you started kind of earning your paycheck, because honestly it probably took a while. I would imagine before you could even take money out of it. Right. How long did yeah. it take you to even earn your paycheck out of your business? Dude, I worked well, so so if you count if you count grad school during which much of which I ended up devoting to TRX, right? right. If you or what would become TRX, I should say. Um, if you count those two years, I, I went five years with no paycheck. Right. You know, I first three years almost four years of um and it was uh, mighty lean times. And, you know, I had, I had, you know, levered up, I had good credit. Right. So I had five, six credit cards that I was kind of using to, to support my personal existence, right. By, by lunch, that kind of thing. Um, I raised, you know, a little bit of, of angel equity early on to, to pay that thousand buck a month rent, yeah. you know, in my, in my quote unquote warehouse office. Um, and, and then I just basically lived on ramen for, you know, three years. And fortunately, um, you know, my wife had a, a job that, that covered the mortgage because we had sold our place in Virginia Beach. And, you know, I thought we made a ton of money. Then I moved to San Francisco and discovered <laughs> that, that basically we barely had enough. All the money we'd made there was basic, barely enough to put, put a down pot, down payment on a, 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 a crappy old row house here. Right. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I, how I got by in those first few years because I had to have help. 
and help needed to be paid, you know? And so I, I was sort of operating on the, you know, the, the classic entrepreneur's optimism that mine will come on the back end, yep. you know, I'll get mine down the, down the line and uh, it doesn't always work out that way, but eventually, you know, I started being able to pay myself. But if honestly, Evan, if you, if you, if you averaged the, my pay during the first 10 years of TRX, I'll bet it would average out to be something like 80 grand a year. Right. That's probably, you know, for, for a dude with 14 years of, of elite service right. and a Stanford MBA, that, that is not exactly <laughs> lighting it on fire. Right. Um, <laughs> So, so, uh, but, but, you know, then, then around a decade into that effort, you, you know, we started doing, doing better and I was able to, to pay myself a decent, uh, a decent working wage. Um, and you know, I'm still waiting, uh, on the big payday at some point in the future. Right. Well, it, that's interesting because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they think I'm going to start my business. I'm going to start making money and, your business might be making money, right? Your, your business might be making money. That doesn't mean that you make money. <laughs> that means your business <laughs> is making money. And there are so many bills. I've had to tell that to guys time and time and time again. You know, I sold two houses. I maxed out my credit cards. I, I, I was like you, I had great credit. I had acquired a lot of things that were, that were, gaining equity over that time, right? I wasn't, a, a lot of guys, I think they were, they were really trying to, you know, put their money into things that, that I really wasn't into. I, would, I wasn't planning on starting a business, but I knew when I transitioned and one of the things I'd always done was I, I actually lived on an E6 salary, even as a, as a contractor. And even as my, my, you know, my, my day rate continued to go up, I should say, but what I was doing was I was not spending the money. And if I did, I was purchasing things that would ultimately gain value. So I knew, I didn't know what it was. I just knew in the future, if one, if it wasn't in the bank, I couldn't spend it. And if it was a tangible item, like a home or land, not depreciating assets, I knew that I would be, might have to cash these things in if life, if life got a little bit rough. And I didn't pay myself a dime for a year and some change after we started black rifle and we had made over a two and a half million dollars at that point. Right. So, you know, almost three and a half million dollars, I would imagine before Evan Hafer took a dollar out of the company, like one dollar. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that, I mean, and look, your, your success has been, I've been so excited watching your success because it's, it's so, um, unique. And I think that, you know, neither of us should have succeeded in what we're doing. Right. Certainly like dumbass idea to take a goddamn jujitsu belt, start a company around it when you're 150 K and MBA debt. Yeah. That's genius. Right. Like, like genius. So, so the odds of that are approach zero. Right. Oh, well, wait, I got another idea. Yeah, in the in the barely competed coffee industry, let's take an ex Green Beret who was roasting his coffee over campfires and start and start that business. And I know we'll go after Starbucks with a home subscription service, right? Yeah. Again, like kind of preposterous in a lot of ways. It's, insane. It's it's insane. It's it wasn't right. Yeah, it's insane. I think 
and I guess even within your business. So after, did you have like a, a breakthrough moment where you got a big account or you landed a, a deal that you knew like this is this is a catalyst, or was it just ounces equal pounds over the course of just hard work over the course of time? Maybe a combination of both. How how did that kind yeah. of unfold? I'd say it was a combo, yeah. right? I, I don't, I mean, I know, like I've read all Gladwell's stuff, right? I, yeah. I, I understand the tipping point thesis. I, I don't actually think it happens that way very often, maybe right. never. I think it usually is a series of little tipping points, right? right. That build, it's like false summits, right? Yeah. You're headed, you're headed to the summit in the distance, but there's going to be three, four, five false summits yeah. between, you know, here and there where you get to the top of a ridge and you go, oh shit, Right. Like it didn't look like this, yeah. you know, on the map. And and now you got to go down yeah. before you get to go up to the next one. But that gets you a little higher. Right. Yeah. And each time you get a little closer. But so for me, you know, it was the, the kind of the first big epiphany was that I was bouncing around. I told you the story about trainers starting to, you know, starting to glom on and go, hey, this is really cool. And then I had some. I had some small retail opportunities, but those were not panning out because I'd go spend three, four, five hours with a with a buyer of a specialty fitness retail store, and at the end of that, they'd go, "Great, I'll buy three units, and I need a Keystone margin, right, fifty percent oh, right. off." Yeah, and I'd realize, like, wait a minute, I just spent four hours to sell a guy, you know, two hundred bucks worth of gear. Right, that like that doesn't work. And and then I went to so to, to the first tipping point. I, I decided to go to this this trainer trade show down in down in SoCal, and we freaking blew out of everything we had in stock. And so the first day, right, it was like a four day trade show. So then I called back to my you know part time waitress, part time office assistant, and said, "Put everything we have left in the office on a pallet and overnight it to me." You know, have FedEx overnight it to me. So the next two days of the trade show, I was basically selling futures, which I'm sure was illegal. (laughs) Swiping credit cards and giving them a piece of paper and saying, come back on Sunday and I'll have your strap. And uh, and then literally, you know, Saturday afternoon, the pallet showed up down there. We broke it open, sold everything had. Well, that was one of those moments when you're like, all right, I got a bunch of strangers here who really understand fitness. Right. And they just blew me out of stock. And I could have sold twice as much as I was able to sell, right, if I had the inventory. Yeah. So that was, an, that was a moment. And then I had another one, you know, maybe a year or two later, which I'm sure, you know, you've probably seen or heard is, is that, that another really good buddy of mine was a, a trainer down in San Diego, a guy named Todd Durkin. And he trained a whole bunch of NFL, young NFL players. And Todd had been a quarterback and so he developed this quarterback training specialty, right? right. He kind of knew what quarterbacks need. And then there was this young cat who got, you know, cut from the Chargers for having torn his his labrum in his throwing shoulder named Drew Brees, who I've yeah, never yeah. heard of. Yeah. yeah, I didn't I didn't know anything about Drew, but Todd called me and said, you know, hey, I got this awesome young guy. Here's what's happened. I think your straps could really help him. You know, would you send a couple down? And so I said, Yeah, absolutely. And that was how I built, frankly, the business. I'm sure you did the same thing with with Black Rifle. Is you, you got to give a lot before you start getting yeah. much in return. But if you just keep giving, you're going to get right. It's going to come around. And yeah. and Drew was an example of that. You know, I, I I got to be a little piece of his recovery. And then 
he went to New Orleans and he called me and said, you know, hey, Randy, would you, you know, would you mind sending me a dozen of these things? Because I want to get the guys on them. So I did that. And then Drew ended up, you know, calling me again and saying, man, I just love everything you're doing at TRX. Like, how can I get involved? And he became this this massive um almost as much emotionally maybe as in reality, but it was just this huge sort of shot in the arm, right. you know, as his career rocketed up and we, we were able to, to be part of it. And he did a very nice job of sharing the love. Yeah. That's incredible. He, uh, cause didn't he go to WSU? Was that uh, undergrad, he went yeah. to Purdue. He was uh, a Purdue guy. Okay. Yeah, he, I think he, he was a Purdue else. guy and then, and then went out to the chargers. <laughs> That's, you know, it's, it's those moments, I guess, where, you know, you are introed and then it keeps moving everything forward. It's interesting to me that you use the, the mountain analogy because I've used that analogy at least a thousand times in the last five, six years because it feels business, definitely my business in the way that I felt is I'm just putting one foot in front of the other and I'm just, just putting one foot in front of the other it's like the weather changes it gets fucking to the point where you can't see six inches in front of your face but you keep going you just keep one one foot in front of the other one foot in front of the other and then the clouds part and it's nice one day and it's beautiful and then it comes back in and you get to like a really fucking nasty area where you've got a bad pitch and you've got to get your ropes out and everything and you just like fuck business feels so much like that at times and then if you've got a company with employees, some of your employees, and I've always said this, I'm like, if I feel like I'm pulling you up the hill like all the time, eventually I'm going to get sick of pulling you as hard as I am and I'm going to leave you, right? And that's kind of like this, the same kind of analogy that you're putting out. So over the course of the years, where the company is today, how many people do you guys have at, at TRX? Like, how many employees do you guys have? Well, I mean, if you'd asked me that a week ago, I'd have told you a larger number, right? right. We, 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 like everybody else, are, are struggling right now to, to brace. And, and I frankly love your analogy because it's, it's uh, I mean, look, part, in part because it's an analogy I, lose, I use all the time. <laughs> so we all, love, we all love it when other people think we're fucking yeah. smart. So, so. So that no, but the patrol metaphor is a great one because yeah. it really is, man, like some days and I and I'm sure people look at you know at, at, at the TRX brand or they look at what you're doing with Black Rifle and they think, man, those guys are just crushing it and you know, ma- making millions of dollars yeah. and it's like, oh how I wish. Yeah. Right? Because because there's just so many things that get in the way of of, you know, realizing the fruits of your labor. Um, so I, I think one, you really gotta, for, you gotta, you gotta be screwball enough to, to really enjoy the slog or, or you, you know, you're going to be waiting a long time for something that may or may not ever even come. Um, but I, I have the 10, I next 10 meters of trail is my metaphor, right? right? Exactly what you were just described. it's like, if you, if you look up on a long patrol and you've got, you know, some huge, you know, elevation that you, that you got to cover, it can break your spirit, right? If you yeah. keep staring off in the distance and thinking, how the hell am I ever going to get there? So one of the tools that I learned as a seal early is focus on the next 10 meters of trail, right? right. Because the next 10 meters of trail I can do. 
Yeah. And then you get to the nine that, you know, meter nine. Well, you just set, you look out 10 meters ahead of that. Right. And you just keep going. And at some point you look over your shoulder and you're like, son of a bitch, like we've covered a lot of ground. Look how high we are. Right. And, but it's, it is what you described. It is a very, one day it's clear and beautiful. The next day, man, you, you're, you don't know if you're going to survive the storm, you know, and you wake up that you wake up the morning after that and you're a little dinged up and bruised and frostbitten, but you get going again. And all of a sudden the sun comes out, you know, so you cover some more distance and that's just life of an entrepreneur. It, it really is. Like I, I've, I've told this to I don't know, countless people where, I would go to special forces assessment and selection at a minimum of every day. Like at my hardest day I would have there, I would do that 365 days in a row before I tried to do my startup again and do my first year over. I would go back and do that year any day, any day of the, any day of the week. Yeah. It, it, because it's, I, I agree. It's fucking brutal. And I, I mean, in the other pieces, you only have yourself to take care of, right? It's like, don't quit, you know, suck it up. Don't quit. But it's just you, right? Your, your paycheck, your family isn't at risk. You know, your, the, the kids that you have to come home and look in their eyes and understand like where their groceries are going to come from. And if you want to put them in a private school and all these other really complex things, things that are so emotionally uh, charged where in, in, in selection or, or the Q course or anything that I've done, it's like, Oh, it's just me and I'm not going to quit. So whatever. I don't give a fuck. Like, so what? We're not going to eat big deal. Uh, you want me to go three days without sleep? Okay. Whatever. Right. You know, like it's not going to affect it whether or not my kids eat tonight. <laughs> That's okay. I'm okay with this. Well, well and you know, the other, thing, the other thing that goes with, the other thing is with that is, you know, I, cause I say the exact same thing about buds. Like, Hey, you know, people are like, Oh my God, how'd you survive buds? I'm like, how'd I survive buds? Buds was like a, a, a preparatory course for being an entrepreneur yeah. because, because the, that is not only that it's exactly as you described, it's all about, you know, you and what you can do, what you can bring to the effort every day, which you feel supremely confident in. Um, but you, you also wanted to be there. Right. Right. Because you could get your head around what that was going to be like, that adventure and what was going to come out of it. The problem with entrepreneurship is you can have that vision, but there's a lot of the equation that is out of your control that involves other people. Right. And then you get people, both whether it's investors that, you know, the second you take somebody's money, if you're any kind of a of, of a man or woman, right, of character, second you take somebody else's money, the 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 stakes ratchet way up from where yeah. you were the day before. Right. And then you get employees right. who, who come in with you. And then yes, you've got your own kids and your family that are depending on you. And all of a sudden, man, the weight of that pressure yeah. to deliver for others gets heavy. Well, and that I use the other analogy, which I might, you, you might approach, you might appreciate too, which is the bigger my company is, is become, I, I, I I've told people this, it's, especially guys that dive like when you're on the top of the water and you're just swimming, you're, you're kind of a startup mode. You can breathe, you can make a lot of mistakes, you know, you're, you're swimming and it's hard work, but the bigger your company gets and the more gravity of the situation, it's the deeper you're getting into water. (laughs) You make a mistake at 125 feet versus one foot. The mistake down there means a lot more. 
to you and your company. So you can't make mistakes, right? It's it, it, when I say that you can still make mistakes, but it has to be so calculated. You're planning. It's like, you know, plan your dive, dive your plan. And I don't want to sound like a team guy here, but it's just like, man, if you're not, if you make mistakes at this level, once you get a little bit bigger, those mistakes can manifest in your ultimate demise of a company, right? So bringing in the wrong partner, you know, taking the wrong type of structured capital, like those are really complex actions that you're dealing with at a company where before, hey man, you know, I'm swimming along. I can make a lot of mistakes. You know, these are, I don't want to say it's, it's, it's not difficult, but it's definitely challenging. So that, that leads me into my next question because you've brought in a few other partners at TRX over the years, right? So how is that, how has that worked for you as far as like your partnerships have gone and you've taken different types of capital, I would imagine too, you know, was that something where how many mistakes have you made on that end? Right. Where it's like, fuck, good, bad. (laughs) A lot. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, I think that I did some really good things early on with, uh, angel investors, right. you know, I got some great, I got guys like Tom, right? right. Which, which honestly, like for, man, for the people who listen to your podcast that are, that are thinking about being entrepreneurs, I can't say enough about the wisdom of focusing on kind of angels, angel investors, individual investors, who have domain expertise and a passion for, for your space, right? right? Because you just, everything about that is a partnership. Right. And one of, one of the things that I, that I can say, uh, you know, I had a really excruciatingly bad experience with my, my first private equity, uh, partners, but just in general, one of the things that, um, that I, uh, I think makes institutional capital hard is that you have misaligned incentives, right? right. They, they, they really have the obligation to try to move all the risk off of their, their plate and the LPs, the limited partners right. that have put money into their fund to de-risk that almost to zero, right? You can right. never, they can never do it to zero because obviously if a venture fails outright, which, which a lot do, mm-hmm then their, their, their investment goes to zero and they have to dollar cost average across that portfolio, which means that all the deals have to be some form of shitty for the entrepreneur. That's just, that's just the reality of it. And, and yes, it's true that you have people who, you know, despite that structure have killed it. Yeah. Right. That, that, you know, but those are the rare ones. say, man, I wish I'd never done that. Like by far, that's the the majority. Um, when you start getting into institutional capital, because you just have such little room to, for air, for the kind of air that you were just talking about, right. Which, which is kind of inevitable if you're building something and what happens when you, so, so my, you know, my experience has been mixed with, um, you know, I think I'm going to move out. I'm going to try to move outside. The gym has good Wi-Fi. You can hop in here. All right, let me let me let me do a quick venue change. Yes, yeah, no worries. My my people are are moving, and uh, it's going to get loud. <laughs> so, <laughs> so 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 what I'm going to do is is we're is we're going to go into the other. Hey, hot, can you go in with mom? I'm gonna I'm gonna continue this in. 
just go ahead. Yeah, you don't you don't need any of that. Just beat it. <laughs> uh, quarantine life, man. Thanks, dude. Yeah. So, so let me move. Uh, I, I got. I got. I got. The one thing I will tell you, Evan, is I've got one of the sweetest home gyms for a non-rich guy that you will ever find because because of the industry, yeah, right, and partnerships, I've managed to scratch scratch their back, you know, and they scratch mine. And so you end up with a pretty sweet home gym. All I need is the time to actually use it. Um, so let's see if I can come, uh, let's see if I can come out here in the sunshine next to the, uh, next to the router and I'll put you down and continue having a conversation. All right. It's easy stuff. All right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The, the challenges of quarantine, right? Right. It's like, trust me. So, as you know, with a six-year-old, you know they don't—they don't actually care all that much about uh, about what is going on professionally. They—they—they uh, they really just want to have fun. So, so anyway, I—I I was saying that I think, um, you know, the 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 capital choices to fund a venture, and I'm actually—it's funny—I'm working on a a book right now. I'm in the early stages of I'm working on a book that that uh is is basically going to be a survival guide for entrepreneurs right and it's going to share a whole bunch of the whole bunch of the stuff that i've learned the hard way right um you know to try to try to help guys and gals who are doing this not make the same kind of mistakes um and and i'll spend a bunch of time talking about capital because you got to have it and there's some choices but you got to be very careful and aware. It's not that I think that you know every institutional uh, investor is is evil. I don't. No. I I think that there are uh, you know really good people in that industry. I just think that a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand what they're getting into right. when they decide. You know, there's a difference between being able to take institutional investors into your venture and whether you should or should not, right. You, you know, and, and at what stage, that's another really important piece of the equation. I think, I don't know what, you know, what's your experience, uh, in, in, in that, in that area? Um, you know, well, I, I could never get a loan because it was, the company was too young, so I couldn't get a loan. Uh, and I, I didn't even apply because I didn't want to go through the, the SBA wickets of even applying for a loan. And, uh, I tried to really concentrate early on on just maintaining profitability on transaction, right? So mine's a little bit different model. I was e-com focused, trying to be profitable on initial transaction. Um, and we did, we did well on maintaining profitability, but when I, I decided to bring in private equity, I think I interviewed, 20 different private equity angels slash, you know, there are multiple different people that I kind of had coming in. And it was surprising actually who I, I chose because my partner, Steven, he's a, as Tom likes to call him, he's a super flexible thinker. Uh, he's a heavy finance guy. So he really understands finance. He's taken a lot of companies public. He's got a big portfolio. You know, he's, sunsetting and his, you know, professional, you know, PE background. So he's more interested in getting a, a direct connection and being involved and in, in the aspects of the company that we're comfortable with him getting involved in. 
Um, but it was, it was honestly, I, I, I've known, I know so much more about it now. My experience with private equity, I'm one of the few that you spoke to, which is, man, I, they've been great. They, they've been so good to work with the team that they brought in, the guys that they, that they kind of brought to bear against what I needed because I really needed structure and to professionalize the company specifically in the finance department. And, uh, but I also knew because I had talked to a lot of entrepreneurs before a lot of guys that I had known that I had really good connections with where they had brought in private equity. It was a fucking horrible experience for them, right? It was just excruciatingly bad. So I knew kind of these were the restrictions, which is, I was only going to invite it in. They essentially had, you know, all common, no covenants, you know, like I, I, I knew I wanted as little control as possible for them to be involved in the company. And if only on my invite, they could really be involved. <laughs> yeah. And, and, well, and I think that's, I mean, cause you just hit a few different variables in the equation, right? I mean, one is you got to, the, the most obvious, but it's the hardest one to peg down is, is you really, you really need great people, right? Mm-hmm. You, you want them to be great people. Right. Two, you have to have a certain kind of business. I think some businesses lend themselves more uh, naturally to the the things that a private equity group can bring right. to to the venture, and and particularly things like yours that are you know fairly like you can look. It's not a super complex model. It's, right. There's a lot of things you you have to execute, but you can kind of see how it scales up, right? And it's not a whole bunch of different activities. It's a pretty, that, that makes your, your venture better for that. And then also the deal structure, right? And that's something that just too few entrepreneurs understand. I was certainly in this category. I didn't understand what the implications of, of these various prefs and deal structure, uh, landmines, how they, how they can blow your foot off. Right. Right. And, and so, I think there's a lot of different variables. That's why I say I don't necessarily say don't ever, you know, take a dollar of private equity or venture capital to people because sometimes that might be a good solution and you might have the right partners that can help you, you know, move fast and get to higher heights than you could have on your own. I do think it it is probably one of the most serious right along with your picking your initial partner, right? Right. Your initial startup partner. It's one of the most important decisions you'll ever make as an entrepreneur, because once you do it, you kind of get on a path from which there is no return, right? You, you know, once you take institutional capital, there's no getting out of it. Really. The only way to get out of it is either sell your venture or, or replace those guys with new guys, right? Because the, because the slug of capital is generally too big for the business to be able to, you know, exit out of cash. Right. And if the business is working really well, those guys don't want to exit. Yeah. If the business is not working well or it's stagnated or it's stuck, then you can't exit them. So, so it's kind of either way you're, you're, you're getting married to an institution that has a different set of, of, uh, you know, of imperatives to yours. And you just got to be aware of that when you, when you get in bed. Yeah, you you couldn't have said that better. You know, I think even not understanding the complexity, and I think you know because of my relationship with Tom, he was he was definitely part of that process. He was definitely helping me through that process. 
you know, we had talked about it quite a bit. He was already kind of part of my, the, the, definitely the guy that I was calling the most, I would imagine, over the course of those years after I talked to him at 511. And uh, he's been a great partner, right? So Tom's just, he's just a great partner. And finding those guys, you know, Matt Best is a great partner. Jared Taylor is a great partner. Like, I could not have gotten luckier in that regard where those guys are solid. They, they're great partners. They're trying to contribute value. They let me run the company. It's great. You know? So when, when guys are, people are really trying to look at, you know, all capital is not created equal. It's really not right. For sure. It's, it's it's just not, and sometimes it's just not worth the the brain damage, right? It's just not worth the brain damage, and you have to go through this courtship to even try to understand who those partners are for an extended period of time. You know, use the due diligence process that people are going to go through, and that's what I keep telling guys is like, use that due diligence process to press your partners on that end before, like, try to try to force the bad weather in that time. You know, force some bad weather and see what kind of metal they actually really have and pick them up the phone and call them at fucking midnight, you know, call them at, at, at 4.30 a.m. and see see how many phone calls are being answered and returned and how long does it take them to, you know, solve a problem that you already might know the answer to. But you're trying to work through your course of action development and then also court them at the same time because I hear time and time and time again about, you know, VC and private equity just ruining businesses, right? Ruining businesses. Yeah, I, well, I think it's easy for them to do, right? right? And, and, and obviously, they don't want to do that. No. They, don't, they don't intend to, they don't come in, you know, no, no private equity guy comes into a venture uh, wanting to destroy it, right? Yeah. I, I don't think that's, that's an overstatement, you know? Um, but what happens you know, what, one of the things I heard you mention is, you know, common structure. Okay, well, most people don't understand what that is right. until later. Yep. But the difference between a common structure and a preferred structure is the difference between night and day. Right. Because a common structure, one class of equity where everyone wins or everyone loses, right? It's just sort of the way it is. You have one common set of equity that the founder owns and the investor owns, and the whole venture gets worth more money. Everybody's shares are worth more. The whole venture gets worth less money. Everybody's shares are worth less. Well, that's a fundamental alignment of interests right there that the second you go into a preferred structure and and particularly a preferred structure that is predatory, which ends up getting getting foisted on a lot of entrepreneurs either out of desperation or because these private equity guys are really good at creating structures that that have hidden – you know, safety mechanisms for them. And, that, and, and it's not, that's their job, right? That's, that's like it or not. It's, it's their job. Yep. So it's not like they're bad guys for doing it. It's just that as the entrepreneur, what ends up happening or can happen is that a structure gets put in place that has certain preferences for the institutional guys that create a hurdle both before the entrepreneur and his or her team and early stage angel investors get a dollar, a whole set of things have to happen for the institutional guys, right? And that's where you start to see this parting of the of of the path 
where you become less like partners and more like a operator and investor relationship. And that's where the danger starts to, you know, starts to creep in. So, so paying close attention to the preferred terms that an institutional investor wants to inject into the contract is, is really critical for entrepreneurs and making sure that you really understand you've got good legal representation who can explain to you what this looks like right. in down scenarios. Yeah. Right. Cause we, as entrepreneurs, all we want to see is the up scenario, right? right. We don't, we don't even want to, if our brain worked in the way that, <laughs> yeah. a, that an institutional investor's brain works, we would never have freaking started what we, what we do right. because we don't see that. It's like, you don't start a mission thinking I'm going to get killed right. ever. Yeah. Right. No one would go on that mission. Yeah. It'd be hard. (laughs) No matter, no matter what, and no matter how grim the odds, right. Spec ops guys all work through their SOPs and their training and their belief in their team to believe that they're going to win or they wouldn't go on the op. Right. Right. And, and so, so it's one of those where entrepreneurs wire and conversely, the institutional investors, that's how their brains are wired. They, their brains are wired to expect you to fail right. at some level yep. and to make sure that if you fail on any of those levels, that their capital is protected, right? And so it's, it's really, it's like, it's, it's like a dog talking to a cat. <laughs> yeah. It's a very difficult conversation, <laughs> right? So, so you, just, you just have to do, you know, do everything you can to, to try to make sure that, that you don't get yourself in a circumstance that later on you go, holy shit, what was I thinking? You know? Well, and I think that outside of even your, your partnership and your private equity, you know, the other thing that, that I want to touch on was, you know, you've been at this for a while and you've got a family. How are you, how are you balancing your, your, you know, your, your, your personal and your family life against the business? Like how have you, you've gone through multiple iterations on this now, like, you know, thousands of reps of trying to balance this stuff. How are you working through that stuff? Have you found things that you're, you're absolutely set on as far as these are keys, you know, key initiatives and things that you utilize in your life to kind of balance that? Probably not as well as I should have, honestly, like I, uh, you know, I've, I've made plenty of mistakes in that category. Like I said, I'm, I'm, a I'm obsessive, with the things I take on and, you know, and so for 15 years, right, I've been obsessed with this little thing called TRX. Um, I think that I, what I have done reasonably well that, that has helped is, you know, I make time The the, one of the top priorities for me has always been my kids Mm -hmm. stuff, right? Whatever, whatever they have going on, I make time for period full stop. Right. right? Like I, I just won't miss that stuff right? because you're going to be in this 24, seven, 365, you know, uh, output cycle as an entrepreneur. And so you're going to work through weekends. You're going to work through holidays. There is no end to the work day, right? right? Whoever calls you calls you when they need you. Right. And, and so, okay, well that's, that's a big load. At least on the other side, you ought to be able to say, these are the things that I'm not willing to compromise on, right? I'm not right. going to miss my kid's game. I'm not going to miss the opportunity to, to go, you know, we're in this ridiculous lockdown, you, you know, that we all have to be in. Right. 
all right, well, I'm going to take an hour each day and I'm going to make sure that I go do some fun with my kid. Right. And, and so that's kind of the area where I've been pretty disciplined. Um, I'm fortunate to work in an area that, you know, kind of makes me work out. Right. right? So, yeah. cause I think exercise is critical, man, for if you're going to take on this kind of venture, yep. I mean, you certainly know, right. It's, it's like the one sort of the closest thing to meditation yep. that a lot of entrepreneurs can do. Go get quiet, grind it out, come away from it feeling good. And like you did something great for your body, right. Right. And your stress and your coronary health and all of that. Um, and I've been pretty disciplined about that because I, I can't be a fat ass walking around selling fitness. Right. <laughs> right. So, so, so I, I've, I've had that built into, and I built that into the culture of the business. You know, we have a, we have a training center in our, on the ground floor of our headquarters. Everybody, we have a staff class every day that, that everybody on the team who wants to go gets to come to, and they right. can jump into any other class that's running to the public, you know, cause different folks have different work styles right. and, and and day parts that work for them. So, so we've built that in as part of our culture and, um, and you know, that those are the things I've done. Well, probably the things that I, I could have done better is, is I've just been obsessed and driven by the business for a very long time. And I'm sure that, you know, that my family would tell you that they don't get as much of me as they should, right. you know, and, and they're not wrong. It's just, uh, I, I keep telling myself that, you know, each year it, it get it'll, it gets a little better yeah. and, and then there's going to be a moment at which, all right, all that hard work, you know, now can throttle back right. a bit and I'm not there yet, but, but, you know, I think I can see it from where I stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and at that point, you know, then, then really the next 40 years will, will be the beneficiary of that. Right. Uh, but I, but I don't think, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, can put themselves in a place where they, they never get there. And so if you haven't made those other, those other priorities happen along the way, you can end up, you know, being regretful about how you spent, you know, 30 years. Yeah, I, I, I'll echo that. Uh, you know, that's the one thing I've sacrificed, I think, over the last few years is, you know, the being in you know, quite literally in like Olympian level shape essentially. And then starting this and going, you know, a week or two weeks at times, if not more, you know, between workouts and it, it's not worth the sacrifice. And like you said, it's, it's just one of those things that you have to get in. You have to get your active meditation. You've got to stay in shape because this is, it's a marathon, right? And a lot of guys, I think they think it's a sprint and they're just going to sprint to the, the, the end and they're going to be done. It's like, God, it, it doesn't work like that. You know, it might work that in point zero 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 one of right. of, of right. the circumstances, but it just doesn't work like that. You know, my sleep went to shit. My, my fitness went to shit. You know, I'm working 20 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm on my phone all the fucking time. I'm not seeing my kids. Like, there's no balance, right? The, and people talk to me about that. They would say, oh, you got to have work-life balance. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. But if you're... <laughs> how? How? <laughs> there's, there's not enough time to get the things done that I need to get done as it is. So you start chopping away. You're doing triage, right? You're, you're triaging stuff to try to get the priorities done. And the thing that I would look back on right now in the last five years, six years, I should say, is, man, if I would have been more disciplined about my sleep and more disciplined about my workouts, my life today 
I would have been in the same exact place if I would have chopped, you know, an hour or two out of my day to get better workouts in and to focus on, on sleep. I would have been, I might've been ahead. I definitely wouldn't have been behind. There was nothing that I was doing at that point in time that couldn't have waited, you know, till the next day or, you know, an hour or two later, there's just like nothing that important. And those things that are important, they only come down now and again, it's not everything, but you're in crisis mode all the time, you know, bells and whistles and fucking alarms are going off every day, you know, and you're just trying to quiet all those alarms. <laughs> you're trying yeah. to get it all done. Well, and I, and I can tell you with a little bit, you know, a little bit more, uh, time under my heels than you have in this, in this game is that one of the things I did realize probably five years ago. So I was probably 10 years into this thing before this epiphany hit me is that the shit never stops, right? Like it just doesn't ever stop. So you can delude yourself into believing that, you know, oh, I'm going to grind through this. I'm going to stay up till, you yeah. know, two to get this done. And, and cause I got to get it done. Well, the next day there's just more shit. There's just yeah. another set of things. And, and, and so at some point you have to make that pivot. That's like, all right, you know what? I got to start to put some boundaries around my life. And I, I think, you know, I look at, I look at guys like Tom who, They've been in it longer than me. Yeah. And, and, you know, he has done a pretty good job, I think, of, of it probably took him a long time to realize this as well. But at some point, you just got to you got to make time for your workouts. You got to make time for your family. You got to make time for the soft stuff that your partners or your team need to talk about, whether right. you want to or not. Right. Right. Because if you do it over time, it becomes less. uh whatever you might think in your mind, oh, they're going to think I'm less hard or they're going to think I'm not as dedicated. It actually goes the opposite. Pretty soon you start to become a little more of a gray beard that, that people look at and go, man, like I, 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 he, he's got something here and I want to follow him. I want to be part of what he's doing because he's not just this, you know, crazy asshole that runs around every day with, with some, you know, huge drama going on. Right. But instead, you know, because it's a marathon, you put your finger right on that. I mean, it is definitely a marathon and not a sprint. And it's not even a series of sprints. It's it's really more like a marathon and you just kind of have to have to keep your feet moving. Yeah, it's it's a one foot, one foot ahead of the other every day. And, you know, the one thing that I get a lot of, you know, does it get easier? Right. Do you, does it get easier for you? Has it gotten easier? It's gotten easier in some places and harder in others, brother. Right. <laughs> that's, that's how I would describe it. Yeah. You know, it's dynamic yeah. in that respect. Yeah, it's 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 a scale. Like sometimes I, I, the way I explain it, it's like I've got a forty arm scale that I'm always trying to balance, right? And then you put weight on one, and the other arm drops, and you you just keep doing this with energy all day long. Like this is what you do. You're just dropping one. Very rarely do I find the nirvana where everything is balanced in every piece of my scale, right? It's like the fleeting seconds of everything that's balanced in my scale. It's like as soon as I get it balanced, a weight falls off. (laughs) I've got to go back and continue to reset everything. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a great, that's a great metaphor because it, it, it really is how it is. And you got to enjoy the balancing act, right? Because otherwise I can't quite, I mean, I, I, I don't want this to sound like you and I are, you know, in an entrepreneur self-help group, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. ragging no, sure, on our, right? ragging on our, our ventures because I don't feel that way. And I, I, I'm sure you don't either. Yeah. 
it's just that neither is it is it uh you know a a panacea of uh of goodness day after day right there's there's hard stuff and if 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 it weren't that way then everybody'd be an entrepreneur and very few people are well and i think I think there are so many guys out there, though, that they paint this image. It's an inaccurate image, right? It's the grind or whatever the fuck they, they talk about. They paint this, like, romanticized imagery of being an entrepreneur with, like, stacks of money in Ferraris. And I think it's it's part of, like, the social media culture where that's yeah. that's what yeah. happens. Like, those are not real. Those are not, like, the point zero zero one of those guys out there, those those just don't exist. Most of that's just marketing bullshit for them to buy some, you know, course that you want to take. And it's like, these guys are good at selling courses to people and getting you to believe something. They're, they, they probably haven't really built a lot of businesses from the ground up, right? So I try to get more out of these conversations where it's like, man, what's the brass tack? What's this feel like? What's the physicality? Like, give me some dexterity to the fucking, the visceral experience of just entrepreneurship. The grind is, it's an accurate description, but the the romance of it, I think, is painted inaccurately by a bunch of sales guys out there that probably haven't experience the same thing you and I have. You know, one of the reasons why I'm a huge believer in in hiring vets, and I, I wish there were more of them, right? San Francisco yeah. is not exactly the uh, hotbed of uh, right. veteran retirement. It's right. like a little communist state, right, yeah. in, in, the middle of, in the middle of the capitalist uh, United States. But one of the reasons why I really am passionate about, about building teams around vets is because they understand some of the biggest challenges that I've had, honestly, were trying to apply the, the lessons that I learned over a lot of years of leading bands of A-plus alpha males, right? right? Like, well, that doesn't convert exactly across <laughs> to the right. civilian world. And, right. and, and one of the things that's different is that, you know, when you go spend any time in any military unit, uh, or frankly, I think most first responder units, this whole idea of, of a higher mission and sacrifice and embracing the sacrifice, you know, because you're part of a team that's doing something special, that's sort of inculcated into damn near every vet I've ever known, right? right? It's, it's just part of the machine. It's part of what the military does very well. Well, if you have a bunch of people that feel that way, Life is so much easier, right? right, right? Then, then, then the opposite, which is trying to run a team full of individuals that that you know their individual prerogative is always first, right? And you know, as often as not, you find people. I mean, I've always found this maddening. If I, I've had lots of good people, I and mean, I, I think we have a very great team at TRX. But even so, you know, lots of people care more about their idea being adopted right. than they do about whether or not the initiative succeeds. Right. And that concept is really pretty foreign to most, most military folks. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if you can put together a team of people that understand and embrace the suck of it, because they understand that that's just part of, part of getting to the summit, right. Or getting to the objective and winning, it makes life so much easier than having to constantly, you know, reshuffle the deck because you're having to coddle all of these over entitled individuals who 
watch too much social media right. and to your point, believe the bullshit, right? right? They believe that, that, that this is, this is how it is that everyone should be a centimillionaire within five years, you know? Right. And, 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 and if you're not, then why should I stick around here? I haven't become a, you know, a millionaire. I've been here two years right. and why aren't I in charge? Right. God, I've been here three years. I should be in charge. It, it, it's that sort of mentality that frankly, I think makes running a company hard, a yes. lot of ways harder than running a military unit. I couldn't agree more. I've talked, I've talked to a lot of vets specifically and vet entrepreneurs about that, where, you know, we have a group of guys that have self-selected to go through selection processes that make them literally, you know, fractions of a percent. Uh, and they're all mission oriented, right? They, they all want to be there and they will do anything to be there, right? They will put themselves through fucking rain, shine, anything, anything to be there. And that selection process and that homogenized element of, of of a unit that, you know, is driven from a strategic initiative through your missions and your objectives that galvanizes this, this relationship with, you know, the men on your team. And it's different, you know, it's different in business. You've got a wide variety of people that, you know, some might be here for a paycheck and, you know, some might be here, you know, because they just, they just needed a job. They're not passionate about it. They're not mission driven. They're self-serving, right? That's just employment in the, in the, in, in, in a capitalist society, that's just employment. That's, that's called running a fucking company and it's different. It's, it's, so there's not a lot of things, and especially when you get into you know leadership and management and breaking those aspects down to where some of these things don't directly translate over because you have employment regulations and EEOC and you know how do you counsel and terminate people and you know these are real things that are much different yeah. right <laughs> they're much and, different and no one no one teaches you how to do that stuff right. right you you can try to reach out and get some bits of advice. But you really just have to try to, to to learn it by doing it, and you learn how to manage around it. But it is what makes I think entrepreneurship hard, right? It's 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 it's, and I've made that mistake many many times of 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 kind of projecting my level of commitment, my level of uh, ability to withstand suffering. You know my level of ferocity to a venture that it's not re- it's not reasonable for me to project that on other people, and right. it took me a long time to realize that. Right? I I just got to expect that they have things in their lives that are more important than than this mission, and and uh, and it. You know I'm I, I, I'm not sure whether I've I've certainly not mastered uh, the ability, but I I've, I guess I've gotten better over time at at acknowledging that reality and then managing around it. Yeah. And I, I think that's a pretty important distinction for people to make. It's not the military. You can take a lot of your skills. You can translate those over for sure. Absolutely. But it's different. You have to expect a, a different form of culture and you can galvanize different aspects of your military experience. But I, I definitely like to touch on those things and kind of talk about them a little bit where, you know, the, the, the next thing that, that, that I want to kind of transition to is when you look at the business now, where are you, where are you taking it next? Like what's, what's next for TRX post, you know, COVID? 
Well, so, so we, like everybody else, you know, we've had to do some layoffs on the side of our business, primarily on the side of the business that serves the commercial fitness right. segment because every club and athletic, athletic facility in the world is closed right now. So, you know, one of my hopes is that we'll be able to go snap those people back up on the other side right. of this. Um, cause we took a lot, a long time building some really unique capabilities that, that, uh, that I hope and expect will be relevant in the future. One of the things that we're doing and, you know, I mean like good to greats, one of those books that's been written oh, yeah. about this, you know, you go a long time sometimes building a particular business and then, and then that unlocks an opportunity that never existed before, right? It's kind of the, the, the diamond mine metaphor, right? You, you got to dig the mine before you can harvest the diamonds. Right. And, and so we built something that I think is pretty special at TRX over the years. You know, we built a globally beloved brand that I mean, we're really like Switzerland in the fitness industry. You know, there are a lot of, a lot of brands that hate each other in, in that industry. And we're one that pretty much we love everybody and they love us. Right. And, and we've, we've, uh, we've put, you know, almost 350,000 training pros of every different stripe through our qualification courses as TRX coaches. And that puts us in a place now where, where we're actually coming into a unique new opportunity to deliver value to a lot of those training pros in a subscription service, right? Yeah. That helps them. We really know them and we really understand the, the challenges in their business. And because of our scale, we now have a position, we're, we're in a position to be able to Monetize. So we're adding a couple of different subscription services into our model as we go forward that will transform us from being, you know, a maker of really durable, too freaking durable goods, <laughs> right. right, that last forever as, yeah. you, as you, thank God you lost all your, you know, you <laughs> lose yours along the way because they never break. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and we've obviously broadened our product line really significant, yeah. significantly because we were fortunate to be front runners in the functional training movement. So right. we've, we've, you know, we've now added every kind of tool. The way I describe it is, you know, it used to be people had big tools with small movements, right? They used to have yeah. like, you know, a, a, a giant machine to do a bicep curl, right? Well, we've kind of inverted that. We yeah. got small tools that you do big movements, right? With. And, and so we've broadened our product line. We've built a brand. We've got, you know, tens of millions of, of rabid fans around the world. And now we're coming into a place where we're going to be able to launch a couple of subscription services, you know, a direct consumer content yeah. subscription on the consumer side of our business. And then this really, I'm super excited about, about what we're doing on the commercial side because we, we know trainers like right. really well at this point. And, and I think we can help them build better businesses and get, you know, a tiny little piece of, of monthly revenue from each one of them right. that comes in that when you aggregate that across several hundred thousand, yeah. at, you know, better than most, right? That those little subscription yeah. uh, revenue turns out to be a great big stream right. of durable uh, revenue, right? Yeah. That, that, and it impacts not only your profit margins, but impacts the multiple by which your business gets valued, right. you know? And, and so that's kind of what's next for, for TRX on, on both sides of our business. Well, that that's cool, man, because honestly, I, I've, I've 
you know, I've been following your business for, you know, a long time. And that's one of the things I've, I've always really wanted. Like I've wanted that kind of TRX, you know, app with scheduled workouts and coach integration. Like I, I want that, right. Just as a consumer, that's kind of one of the things I would love to have, uh, because you run into scenarios where you're like, man, I, I want to get a little bit more out of my workouts. I've, I've watched the videos on YouTube, you know, maybe I just want somebody to remind me that there's more that I can get out of the product on a, on a ping basis, you know, Hey, check it out, check this out, check this new product out. So I, I've, I've been, a, obviously I've been a fan. I mean, I think, you know, people have heard me gushing over the last, you know, hour and a half over what's going on over there. Don't think, don't think it's not appreciated by the way. <laughs> I, I, I am going to uh, drink a hell of a lot more black rifle coffee going forward so that I can shout you from the rooftops. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, man. So where, where can people find, you know, what's your website? Where do you want to direct traffic as far as what's going on with TRX? So trxtraining.com, mm-hmm. right? That's our, that's our site. And, okay. and we are really working hard to kind of pull back in some of the ropes that we've pushed out to social media, right? right over the years there, there, I mean, everything used to live on websites, yeah. right? Then it all got exported out into the social sphere. Mm-hmm. And, and part of what we're trying to do is, is fuse those back together. And, and really our website is the epicenter mm-hmm. of, of what we're doing. We've got a couple million rabid social followers. Um, but I think as you look forward, most of the cool stuff is going to live on our site and it will, it will integrate our social platforms, Mm -hmm. but it won't be exported out there onto, you know, Zuckerberg, uh, or Google's, you know, platforms quite as much. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's really the place to go. And obviously we're distributed, you know, through Dick sporting goods and, Amazon and all, you know every place you would expect to see us, but really trxtraining.com is kind of where where the epicenter is. Well, I appreciate it, Randy. Uh, appreciate everything you've put out as far as the last you know hour and some change. And I, I look forward to seeing what's going on with TRX. Hopefully, I can have you back in the next few months, and we can go through this COVID and check in again and see what's going on. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and 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 definitely let me know before you take your your pod live on yeah, this episode because what I want to do is use that. I mean, I, I think that you and I talked about a bunch of things that, that only a couple members of the same tribe can. <laughs> and yeah. But entrepreneurs out there, like, this is what they need. Yeah. And, and and aspiring entrepreneurs, you know, need to think through some of the stuff we've talked about. So what I, what I will commit to doing is blasting this out across our network. And at the very least, that's going to get a whole bunch of people in that's a that's a great way for us to you know support each other you get some of your coffee drinkers on my straps and i'll get some of my strap people on your coffee (laughs) that's an easy trade man thanks a lot Andy. i appreciate it